I'd like to invite Denny and Maureen Chabot to come on up here. Come on up, Denny. I don't know if, uh, if all of you know Denny or not, but you should. And hopefully after today, you'll get to know him. In the first service, he truly was surprised, but now he's not going to be surprised. But today or this month um, is, marks his 15th year of serving on our staff at church. How about that? Yeah. Denny, uh, for many years, served on our facilities, oversaw everything that went on here. And what was a hallmark of his ministry in that role was he always would stop and pray and encourage. And he just had a heart about him. He was, even in that role, continually volunteering to be the one that would go to, to the hospital to pray with people. And he now serves on our care services team, and that's his job. And just a few weeks ago at the staff retreat, he articulated what he felt called to do by God at Grace. And he said, I feel called to just bring his love and care to the body as it's needed. And we just wanted to honor Denny this morning in front of you all. I'm going to give him a chance to speak in a second, but many of his uh, friends and those that he's ministered to over the years have come together and have given him a gift, and here's the official gift, to send he and Maureen on a trip somewhere warm. In the first service, you missed a nice little video of a hula hula bobblehead, but uh, there it comes right now, okay. He actually has that. Um, but, Denny, do you want to say a couple words, maybe? A couple words. They always say, never give up the hammer to somebody with a big mouth, and he just made a mistake. <laughs> no, I just want to thank uh, Grace Community Church, my friends, my family. It's amazing what Jesus Christ will do in a life if we open the door and let him in. I have been blessed by this church over and over, and this is just another blessing. I encourage you people and I pray for you people every single day. Continue to worship an honest, a good, wonderful, sovereign God. He is our all in all. Thank you so very much. God bless. Will you stand for a minute? Let's just pray a blessing over here and Maureen. Let's just, uh, let's say a prayer. Lord, thank you for Denny and Maureen. Thank you for the love that he has extended to so many, many of us. And we do just pray your blessing on him, that he would know our, our appreciation, and that he'd be encouraged to continue to serve you even more. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Well, good morning again. It's hard to believe that it's been over six months since I was given the opportunity to share with you from Philippians chapter 3 back in March. Um, In that passage that I had to read there, we got the definition of spiritual maturity from the Apostle Paul's perspective. And it was simply this. Wanting everything God has for us. Not settling for being lukewarm. He encouraged us not to focus on the earthly appetites that we have, but to be focused on seeking after and bringing God's kingdom to earth. In that talk, I shared a bit of my own journey and how five years ago, something really triggered in me when I saw a video of a Turkish pastor refusing to pray over a Muslim woman until she professed faith, contrasted with Heidi Baker, this overflowing, bubbling woman who just wanted to bless her in Jesus' name and trusted that God would work out the theology down the road 
and it was such a striking contrast to me. It began to surface some of the issues of control and of my own religious spirit and the focus I have on my image. I also shared how important it had been to me in my own journey to be involved in an intentional discipleship relationship with a spiritual director, a mentor, a discipler, if you will. And we ended with Jesus' invitation in Revelation in chapter 3 where it says he's knocking at the door, wanting to date us, wanting a relationship of life and of love. Then three months ago, I had the privilege of sharing my favorite Old Testament character, King Asa, with you. The message from that was that we owe our generation a real encounter with God, not fake religion, but the reality of God. Asa was a guy that started well. He accomplished incredible things in his lifetime, and yet as his hair started to gray like mine, he began to rely on himself, and he died a mean, cruel man in pain, not seeking after God. The passage had the verse with God's flashlights where it says that God's looking across the earth for a man or a woman, young or old, whose heart would be fully given over to him, that he could show up and be real. Those two were very life-giving messages to prepare. Things kind of flowed pretty easily with what I sensed God wanted to share. And about six weeks ago, Doug asked if I consider speaking in the second week of the First John series on just three verses. In fact, they're so short, my expectation is that most of you will leave here having memorized those three verses. However, it was a lot more difficult than I had expected to actually flush out what the application really was. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 7 simply says this. This, in essence, is the message we heard from Christ and are passing on to you. God is light, pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in him. If anyone claims to have a shared experience with him and continues to stumble in the dark, they're just lying through their teeth. They're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light, God himself being the light, we also experience a shared life with one another and the sacrificed blood of Jesus, his son, purges us from all sin. So the content today is pretty simple. First, God is light, pure light. Second, when light is present, darkness isn't. And third, it's our choice. Are we going to walk in the light or are we going to stay in the dark? And the questions that we'll focus on are, what does it mean to walk in the light? Why is it so hard to do it? And how do we do it? I'd like to begin with a prayer. So Lord, we pray right now that you would shine your light on this church in our hearts. Lord, I pray that like bugs at night are drawn to that fateful zapper, we would be just drawn to your light, that you would show us something today about you and that we would leave changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 20 years ago, this summer, I embarked on an adventure that has continued on for two decades. Two weeks, one RTV, two families, three kids under four, and one sermon by an aging, wise Catholic priest entitled Solitude, Community, and Ministry. In his sermon, the wise sage described Jesus going up, it says, and he went in Luke 6 on the mountain and he spent the night in prayer to God. And in the morning, he chose his 12 apostles and he called them to be with him and to be in community together. And then they began to go out and minister and bring God's kingdom to those around him. And as we listened and re-listened and ultimately transcribed the talk, God birthed something inside my partner, Tony Simrusi and me, 
that would come to fruition two years later as God moved him to the east side of Detroit and the, then later me to join him in, in a business partnership. That priest, now deceased, was Henry Nouwen. He described our lives at that time with extreme clarity. He said this, Because we had yet to deeply experience the unconditional love and acceptance of our Father in heaven, kind of what Doug was talking about last week, John thinking he was the beloved of the Father. Because we hadn't deeply felt that love, we spent our life chasing accomplishments, or as Henry defined it, begging for the affirmation of others. Henry was an accomplished professor at Harvard, a famous priest, a prolific author, and yet God led him to leave his post in academia to move into a community of mentally challenged adults in Toronto. The way that Henry described it was that God had told him, if you move in and love them, I will heal your heart. What was interesting in my devotional reading a couple weeks ago, I came across a quote by Henry Nouwen that I wanted to share with you. And it says this, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I probably know more about prayer, meditation, and contemplation than most Christians do. I've read many books on the Christian life, and I've even written a few myself. Still, as impressed as I am with my own insights, I'm more impressed by the enormous abyss between my insights and my life. I wonder if that thought has ever hit you as it has hit me recently. Lots more Bible information up here than my family sees lived out in my home, unfortunately. Our passage is pretty clear. God is pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in him. And if we claim to have an experience of his shared life, and yet we stumble in the dark, we're lying. We're missing something. And so this morning I wonder, how aware are we of the extent to which we're walking around in darkness? You know, he says at the beginning of verse 5 that that which I've heard from the beginning, I'm declaring to you. I'm, I'm telling you the message of Christ. Do you know that there's not one place I could find in the Gospels where Jesus is recorded as having said this specifically, God is light in him, there's no darkness? It got me thinking about just what is the connection with light? I want to share some of the passages that I came across that have been pretty helpful. It starts in creation, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. John also wrote the Gospel of John. And listen to how he starts his Gospel. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now John's writing, and he's going to mention another John, John the Baptist. He's the one that got beheaded by, for whatever reason. But here's what he says about John the Baptist. He continues, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So John the Baptist came to bear testimony about the light. But listen to how Jesus describes John the Baptist in John 5. He said, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. John was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Near the end of Jesus' life, he's chastising the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious folks of the Jewish culture then. And he says this about them because they did not follow John the Baptist. He said, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And even when you saw that, even when you saw their lives being changed, afterwards you still did not change your minds and believe him. So the most religious people of Jesus' day didn't get the light. They didn't, they didn't understand it. In John chapter 3, we read this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest their works should be exposed. God is pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in him. Sometimes we avoid the light because we're not too interested in seeing what it will reveal, don't we? You ever wonder why some people are drawn to light and others aren't? Why are some people willing to come out to John the Baptist and confess their sins and be baptized and have a whole fresh touch from God, whereas others, they hold back? The Apostle Paul gives a little light on this in a passage he wrote in 2 Corinthians. It says this, Even if our gospel is veiled, veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan has the ability to put a veil up, to prevent the light from getting through. The passage continues, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So sometimes the light gets blocked, and yet God says, Just like in creation when it was totally dark, and I spoke and light came, I have the ability to shine light into your hearts. John also wrote the book of Revelation. At the end of it, he's talking about heaven and the new city. And he says, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb, or Jesus. Do any of you remember what happened with Moses when he came down with the Ten Commandments? I asked my girls this earlier this week, and they said, yeah, he was mad, and he smashed them. And I was like, all right, that's true. That's not what I was looking for, though. This is what it says in Exodus. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. How about that? Hang out in God's presence and you can get a holy sunburn and it just radiates your presence. I like it. 
But we still haven't gotten to the hard part, have we? What do you do when, despite your best efforts to strive to live like Jesus, if you're honest, you see darkness in your heart? I think the first step in getting honest with it is to look at what ultimately is going to happen. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, Don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. So whatever we're keeping in the dark today, at some point it's going to all be shown. It's just a question of when. All right, let me just recap where we've been. God is light, pure light. God spoke and created the light. Jesus is the light of the world. Not everyone's excited about the light. The light exposes. And not everyone's ready to be exposed. God's light discloses the purposes of the heart. So how's it supposed to work? I think John the Baptist is a good example of what's supposed to happen. God kind of gives him this special calling and anointing, and he's, you know, he's a fiery prophet. He's out in the wilderness, and he's eating locusts and stuff. But people are drawn to light, and they go, what do we do? And he says, repent. And if you're sinning, stop sinning. Get baptized. Have a new life. Have a change of your life. That's what's supposed to happen. Light exposes. You're drawn to it, and you just confess, and you're changed. So then what's the problem? What makes it? so hard sometimes to choose to walk in the light. I think the first problem is that for many of us, we're self-deluded. We're deceived. Isn't that what was true of the Pharisees? You know, Jesus said, nothing is covered up that will not someday be revealed. Nothing's hidden that won't be known. At one point in his address of what the Pharisees were like, he said, everything they do is done for men to see. And they didn't even realize it. At one point he tells a parable and it says that to those who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down with contempt on others, he told this story. And he said there was two people. One guy was an awesome religious guy and he stood up in public and he didn't even pray to God. He prayed about himself. Thank you, Lord, that I'm so great. I tithe. I fast. And then another sinner went into a closet on his knees. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the guy that left forgiven. But there are other ways that our darkness can be hidden from us. There's a day where Jesus is walking along and a guy kind of shouts out and says, hey, will you tell my brothers to give me my share of the inheritance? They're cheating me. And Jesus says, look, I'm not a judge. But then he says, Watch out for covetousness. Your life doesn't consist in what you possess. And for a lawyer to kind of hear that there's something sinful about just wanting your rights that you deserve, it's kind of a little, a little too close to home, if you know what I'm saying. Or how about this? How about harshness? Remember the story Jesus tells where he says this one guy was, had such a huge debt he could never pay it back, and he cries for mercy, and he's forgiven, and he goes out and he finds someone that owed him a fraction of what he owed, and he just is merciless with him. And God says, Jesus says, if you have been forgiven, it should translate into mercy to other people. How many of you know couples who have gotten divorced or are getting divorced and they just look at you and I and go, you don't understand what it's like. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to forgive and I'm, it's too hard. You don't understand. I had a mom recently forward me a, um, a text interchange between 
a very religious dad and his daughter. The dad trying to protect his daughter from the evils of sin, and she'd posted something inappropriate on Facebook, which it was inappropriate. But in the di- dialogue between the two of them, it was a, I didn't raise you to be white trash. I didn't, you're, you know, and the girl's just like, Dad, I love God. I'm trying. Like, where's the grace? And here's this guy. He's just defeating the whole purpose. He's crushing his little girl's heart. Erstwhile, he's thinking, I'm honoring God by protecting my daughter and telling her how to live. What a good dad I am. There's another way, though, that makes it hard to walk in the light. Some people might be like the Pharisees or somewhat deluded, but sometimes we just, we just get broken down. There's a portion of you probably here. You're so aware of your darkness, you've just given up hope almost that God could really forgive and love. We keep making mistakes. Satan tells us we're no good. We believe lies. We're not worthy. Maybe it's a little bit like I was 20 years ago. Yeah, I know Jesus loves me. I believe in it. But man, what really makes me feel good is when I achieve and when I get the affirmation of others and I don't really experience that. I recently had a Christian man share this with me. I'm not the man I was eight years ago. That man has died. My wife was unfaithful to me, so I cheated on her. I've given up. I'm sure God loves me, but my vision of what I could do is dead. Remember what 1 Corinthians said? The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And for some of us who are discouraged and know oh too well your darkness and sin, this light today is going to be good news. came across a great verse in Acts that I've been thinking a lot about lately. It's Acts 10, 38, and it says this. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Wouldn't it be amazing if those of us who are oppressed by the darkness of the enemy could be freed and healed? All right, time to get practical. So how do we do it? How do you learn to walk in the light? I started this morning with referring to this trip I took 20 years ago. What I didn't give you was the backdrop to the trip. I graduated from law school in May of 94 and had spent the two months prior to the trip with a routine of studying. And then as soon as I took the bar and thankfully I passed, we went on this awesome vacation. With my routine, I would have my job, and then I would go at 9 o'clock to someone's office that they provided for me until 3 in the morning, and I'd bring my 2 liter of Diet Coke, and I would fill my brain with all kinds of things I had to try to remember and come home, and I'd get home, and I'd be exhausted, and I would be tired, but I'd be kind of wired on Diet Coke, and most had long since been in sleep, and so I'd turn on the television. And Back then, there were a lot of these 900 commercial ads coming on, and it didn't take too long for me to just think, that sounds kind of interesting, and began a process of, of some darkness. Now, I had this awesome vacation with Tony and our families, but I didn't know him well enough to get that honest, so I didn't talk about that dark spot in my life. It went on for a, for a while. I was in a small group probably more than a year after that experience on that trip. Um, I took a new job. I started traveling more, and I, I, I began making worse decisions. I remember the day that I 
I said to my small group leader, Kirk Rogg, I need to get together for breakfast with you. And I came clean with one person. I think it was about a year or two later, he ended up moving out of the state, so I was safe with that secret. Problem is, the darkness didn't go away. It was about two years after that trip, 18 years ago, that I had a freak accident and my, hand almost got, my fingers almost got severed off my hand. And I was sitting uh, on my couch in the middle of the night in the midst of the pain and whatnot with my hand up. And I felt like God spoke to me and said this, next time, I won't spare it. time for me to start walking in the light. So, with that uh, renewed sense of motivation from the Lord, I confessed to Melissa, I confessed to Tony, and I began to be a bit more honest in some counseling to try to figure out what was broken and what I was going to do about it. I wish I could say that my issues in darkness stopped at lust, but there's more. There's harshness, there's anger at home, there's extreme concern for my image, basic Pharisee disease, hyper-control in parenting. And the message of the verses this morning is until, and un unless and until we start to walk in the light, we miss out on experiencing what God really wants us to experience, both with him and with other people in terms of what real fellowship and shared life is. In God's presence, we're humbled. As we read his word in truth, it combats the lies of the devil that even though I'm a despicable person at times, I'm loved. And I'm, it's hard to put that into juxtaposition sometimes, isn't it? God's light exposes our darkness, but as I come into the light, as I repent and I, as I confess, I find out I'm not the only one with problems out there anyway. And I begin to experience a, real, a reality in relationships that's different. So how does it happen? How do you start walking in the light? I think a great place to start is, is with small groups. That's why we're set up the way we are. We don't believe it's just memorizing all the right theology and then you're good. We believe it's about being real, about what's really going on, and that we need each other to grow. You know, we were really encouraged with our survey this summer to know that something like 80 plus percent of you acknowledged, those of you who responded, that it's, you, you need more than Sunday morning to grow. You gotta get connected. About half of you were connected. Of those of you that were connected, 85% said you felt fairly safe being real. But only half the people in small groups said they're being challenged in their sin patterns on a regular basis in their small group. That's the goal. The next step is intentional discipleship. It's one thing for me to show up in my, in my small group every week, but if I'm not willing to call Kirk up and say, Kirk, I got to talk, I, I don't get the benefit of it. And all of us have an obligation, I believe, to reach out to somebody and get real. There's a lot of us in this church that don't have it totally together, but we're willing to spend an hour or two a month getting to know you, having breakfast, having coffee, praying. Taking the step to get honest takes courage. Let me give you a little illustration. Just before I started law school, I had the privilege of serving on a jury trial. Um, there was a young boy riding a moped in Detroit that ran in the back of a truck, and it smashed him unconscious. Someone sees him, takes him to the local hospital. Unfortunately for this young man, it wasn't St. John's Trauma Center. It was a Saturday 
it was a smaller regional hospital. The doctor was on call. They didn't know how to do the test properly. They didn't do the test properly, and they gave him some IVs, and they didn't realize that his, his veins between his liver and his heart, two were completely chopped off, and one was partially, and he was bleeding inside. By the time he started to really fall apart on the vitals, it was too late, and he died. I tell you that because on Labor Day weekend, I was in an ATV accident where I was going a little too fast into a turn, and it rolled, and I kind of supermaned off and broke a few bones in my hand, and I couldn't even stand up. I'd never really been that kind of like banged in my head that much before. My back was sore, and I got to tell you, when I was, uh, one more part of it, so I'm in the, in the room, and I just go like this to talk to Melissa, and just that little turn, I started spinning and threw up, and I was like, boy, something's messed up in me. I was really glad for an MRI that day. You know what an MRI is? You know, it takes the picture, and they go, got some good news on your brain. No concussion, no swelling. You just kind of spun it around. You're a little dizzy. You should come out of it. And, you know, all your organs are intact. No internal bleeding. You're just bruised up. You're pretty lucky, actually. My challenge to you this morning is this. Are you ready for a spiritual MRI? See, when you really think the stakes are high and that if a doctor screws up, you maybe could die, if they just send me home saying, no, you look okay, but they don't see if I've got the veins or the arteries disconnected or whatever inside, when it's life or death, you care about it. So the question is, do we really have a proper understanding of how at risk we are with the darkness that we carry. I'd like to give you another illustration. This one uh, is a fun one from my perspective. You know, John wrote all kinds of stuff in the New Testament, right? The Gospel of John, Revelation, these letters. Well, there's a series of vignettes about John. It's in Luke chapter 9 that Luke writes, and he doesn't put in his gospel. And listen to what it says about John. The context is this. They were sent out two by two on their first missionary journey under the kind of anointing of Jesus. And as you might imagine, or maybe it'd be amazing, wouldn't it, to have the power to heal people and to see, you know, demonic people, you know, really. Well, they get back from this experience, and they all went different places in two by two. And it says that an argument broke out among the disciples about who was the greatest. They start telling their stories. Oh, are you kidding me? You should have seen what I did, what God did, what Jesus did through me. Jesus hears about it and he takes them all aside and he says, look, I didn't give you this power. I'm not giving you this kingdom to figure out if you're better than the other person. It's serving each other. Take whatever gift I give you and freely give it. A little bit of, of ego darkness there. So the next couple verses come along and John goes to Jesus. Hey, jo hey Jesus, uh, I had an experience when I was out on my missions trip. There was some other dude casting out demons out of people. And so I went up and said, hey, you're not part of Jesus' team. You can't do that. That's for me, not for you. Wasn't that good? Jesus kind of smiles and goes, oh, John. You know, anyone who's not against us is for us. And my kingdom's bigger than our little denomination, maybe. Don't forbid people who are doing what I've called them to do just because you don't know them. Next set of verses. They're on this kind of walking, going from A to B. And they need to go through a city to do it. And the people in this Samaritan village refused to let Jesus and his disciples to come in. So, you know, I don't know what tweaked them with it. You know, maybe it was, you know, just feeling like, hey, I had to go to the bathroom. I wanted some food. And they're not letting us do it. We've got to walk in there six miles or something. But John comes up to Jesus and he goes, hey, Jesus, can I call down fire and nuke them and just toast the whole village? 
Jesus is going, I, I, I think you're missing it a little bit here, pal. Walking in the light. But what I love about it is when you're in community like that and your warts come out, you just, you just, you just, ah, sorry, my bad, Jesus. All right, I'll try to learn to love people. Okay, I don't kill them when they offend me. Got it. <laughs> Unless you think that it, it kind of got all fixed right away, right before he dies, Peter, James, and John have this amazing experience. They're brought up on this mountain, and it's called the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus kind of like morphs into this shininess, and Moses and Elijah come down, and they start talking to each other, and I got to think, if I'm one of those three, I'm feeling pretty good about my chances compared to the other nine, right? Wow. <laughs> Jesus says to them, don't even talk about this until I've risen from the dead, and they're like, what does that mean? So, a little bit later, they're walking along, and James and John are brothers, and their mom comes up to Jesus, and he says, hey, Jesus, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I'm a little nervous that Peter might be closer to you than they are. Will you promise me that James and John can sit on either side of you in the kingdom? Can you believe that? It's so encouraging to me when I read like, things like that in the Bible, because I think John was a dude like I was. He had some darkness. He had some ego. He had some sin. And God accepted him, and God's working on him. So how does it work? As we live in community, our darkness is revealed and exposed. We take it to the light of Christ to learn what to do with it. We live our lives close enough to people that they can call out our dark spots. And then for some of us who've been in hiding like I was, God calls us to come out, to be honest, take a risk. It's just not that much fun playing religion. But experiencing grace and forgiveness and healing, that's pretty awesome. So here's a question for you. Who knows you well enough to help you walk in the light? The passage is pretty straightforward. This is the message we've heard from him and are passing on to you. God is light, pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in him. And if we claim that we have a shared experience with him, but we continue to stumble in the dark, we're lying through our teeth. We're not living what we claim. But if we walk in the light, God himself being the light, we also have a shared life with each other. And the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus purges us from our sin. Consider this vision for what our church could become, a church where everyone is spending time in God's presence, having his light shine in our lives. Where every one of us is connected in a small group of some sort with other Christ followers, where we open up our lives, we challenge sin patterns, we give honest feedback when necessary. Every one of us is then, in addition, engaged in a discipleship, mentoring type of a relationship, someone with whom you can be honest and share your life and say, will you pray for me? Will you help me walk in the light? And it's one where you're led by elders who are doing the same thing. That if we're like, if you picture us like a group of like the disciples with Jesus where our flesh comes up and we call each other out and we confess our sins and we humbly say, we want to be real as we learn to experience this kind of life together. This winter, our church is going to do a study called The Church Without Curtains. And it's going to be a call to do just what I laid out, that everyone would get connected What's a curtain to you besides look pretty? 
It blocks out the light. It hides. It conceals. What if we became a church where we didn't have pretense, but we just sought to honestly say, I'm humbly trying to follow Jesus. So as we bring it to a close, I wonder, what darkness may God be revealing in your life that he's saying to you, it's time to come clean? I wonder what lies some of you might be believing about whether you're lovable, whether you could be forgiven, whether there's any hope for a, a man or a woman like you who screwed up as badly as you have. As I close, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to just kind of be a part of a little mini restorative prayer, guided prayer thing. And if you're willing, I'd just like you to close your eyes and, and maybe just silently repeat this. And I, and I want you to listen for what God will say. God, shine your light in my heart. Is there any darkness that you're telling me it's time to confess and come clean on? God, shine your light in my heart. Is there anyone I need to forgive? God, shine your light in my heart. Is there any fear that needs to go? What are the lies I'm believing that create the fear? God, shine your, heart, shine your light in my heart. Is there any sexual sin or any soul ties that need to be repented of and severed? God, shine your light in my heart. Is there any place that I've given Satan an entry point through my willful involvement with him or partnership or lies I believe? God, shine your light. What is my next step to begin to walk in the light as you are in the light? In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite any of you that are feeling stirred that there will be people here to pray if you like. And I want to really encourage you to engage relationally the way that God's calling us to. Thanks. You're dismissed.